Last week we spent considerable time on dissecting the word as we read it in the Gospel of Mark as we've been working our way through it. And we were dissecting the word concerning the popular but the mistaken notion that the Apostle Peter was the rock upon which Jesus said he would build his church. And last week, I believe I compellingly established that this was not the case. The rock, as it appears in the Old Testament, refers at least 13 times to none other than the promised coming Savior, Messiah, Redeemer, King. Thanks to Matthew's fuller account that gives us some added details from what Mark records about the same event, we hear Jesus change his addressing Peter to Peter's formal name, saying in verse 17 in Matthew 16, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are a Petros, that is, you are a rock, and upon this, the Petros, the rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The this that Jesus refers to is the proclamation that Peter makes in verse 29, that Jesus is in fact the rock foretold centuries before concerning the coming Redeemer. I will build my church upon this, the rock, not on a very fallible, errant, wavering man, or even a succession of men who have been elected by other very fallible, errant, wavering men, but rather according to John verse one, chapter 1, verse 1 and 14, he has built it on the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative, unwavering revelation to God, to mankind, as we know, is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Peter was anything but stable, And he demonstrated that he was not that immovable rock that could support the weight of the foundation of the church of what became known and was known rightfully as the body of Christ on earth. And that's poignantly recorded for us by Mark. Well, in verse 29 last week, Peter is the hero. When Jesus asks Who do you say that I am? Getting away from the impersonal, well, who do other people say that I am? But now, who do you, my disciples, my my peeps closest to me, who do you say that I am? Peter is the one that jumps right up and he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But three, three, count them, three scant verses later, Peter's status as the hero rock falls flat to the status of the zero rock, with Peter even rebuking Jesus for what to Peter were outlandish statements, that Jesus was going to be rejected by Israel, that he was going to have to suffer and he was going to be crucified, and that he would finally rise again. Jesus responds making sure that all of the disciples here 
Remember, this is only three verses after Peter, a rock of granite, who is in so tune with God that Jesus commends him for rightly understanding who he is, the promised Redeemer of mankind. Thou art the Christ. And yet is quickly so out of step with God that Peter, now the rock of pumice, crumbles, demanding Jesus abandon God's plan for the salvation of mankind. That is not the kind of rock on which one can build an institution that will endure through centuries of of upheaval and sin and satanic onslaught without even the possibility of being destroyed. Well, the dynamic interchange ends, and Jesus now calls the masses. He calls the crowds back with the disciples, and Jesus picks up tracking right on top of what Peter had just said in his rebuke, because Peter was implying in what he said to Jesus, this, Jesus, is now our time. You need to stop this talk about defeat and about suffering and rejection. And you need to carpe diem, seize the day, hosanna, save now. Ah, ah, this is our time. This was the hope born through the ages that it was the Jews' time finally. And after all, this was their understanding. This was their understanding of the Old Testament promises and the Old Testament covenants regarding the coming, conquering king. And this wasn't wrong. They just had their timeline messed up. We see this expectation playing out before Jesus ascends back into heaven after his resurrection. In the opening of the book of Acts, Jesus meets up with the boys and He tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, which provokes their question, asking in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, verse 6, Lord, is it at this time? Is this now the time that You are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus gives them the very unsatisfying answer of, not going to tell you. <laughs> so to set up the next passage, Mark reports their expectation of thy kingdom come being informative because the foundation of their hope is not for the glory of God, but is for the fulfillment of their desire to have the wrongs of a kingdom under Roman rule dismantled with the result of the Jews regaining their place and position in the world according, again, to their understanding of the promises of Jehovah. In other words, the disciples' hope for thy kingdom come is all self-centered. Which is why Peter only moments ago protests to Jesus that he shouldn't say such things as to imply that he, the promised one, is going to be murdered. Because if that's true, if that is true, Jesus, what you're saying, then it's bye-bye, thy kingdom come. And worse, it's bye-bye any hope of my kingdom come. 
That's what was behind Peter's words and his rebuke. So we have the setup for what Jesus now is going to lay upon them. And it's not what they want to hear. And yet all these thousands of years later, in the year Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, 2016, it is not, it is not truth be told what we want to hear. So the scene unfolds. And the very last thing what we left off on last week that Jesus said to Peter was, Get behind me, Satan! For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Verse 34, new material, Mark chapter 8. And Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, you got to stop immediately right there. This is one of those times when our familiarity with the scriptures and the hindsight of over 2,000 years causes us to gloss over what's there. We have to force ourselves to listen to Jesus in the sandals of the disciples. We have to hear Jesus' words as the people, the masses that Jesus called to Himself, have heard Jesus speaking this. And for them, we have to remember the chronology of the history of Jesus on earth and the gospel playing itself out as it was in their day of history. To us, take up your cross and follow me is a cliche. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if there were some who have it in some kind of a, a little thing in their house somewhere. Nothing wrong with that. Please don't get me wrong. But you see, with two millennia of hindsight, we know Jesus was alluding to his own impending execution on the cross. And we hear those words and we welcome it. (laughs) Hopefully. We commemorate it every month, like this morning, which, by the way, is totally coincidental. And we understand, at least at varying levels, to be sure, We understand what Jesus meant. Or at least we should. But even those closest to Jesus, when they were hearing these words, they did not have it put together, as Mark tells us over and over. And so you know that the crowds surely didn't have it put together. And remember that Jesus kept putting on a gag order on the people He touched. And when he would perform these miracles and when he performed healings, he would put a gag order on them, telling them not to say anything. But now, now he's, he's publicly tipping his hand of what is to come. Jesus tells Peter, the disciples, and he tells the crowds that if they are interested in being one of his followers, they don't need to start polishing their crowns. They need to take up 
their crosses and follow him. But again, now see, here's the rub. We, again, we hear this from the vantage point of post-crucifixion. For them, Jesus hadn't been to the cross yet. Oh. And as Peter so clearly reveals, even if they had any real understanding that Jesus would be rejected by the Jewish hierarchy and that he would be crucified by the same, they would reject that out of hand because their promised deliverer, as I said, according to everything that they knew in the Old Testament, was coming, was that Jesus was coming to rule and to reign, not to be executed in defeat and humiliation. So why would anyone in their right mind with any sense of coherency listen to him, much less start following this man? Well, as we know, the masses didn't. Oh, there were exceptions, to be sure. But there were no massive revivals. In fact, there was a torturous execution. Those whom the Father was drawing, John chapter 6, verse 44, would come to the Savior. And what Jesus proclaims to the masses here is absolutely counterintuitive, meaning it is utterly against what a clear-thinking person would expect. Allow me to paraphrase sort of the whole background here now in the scene, taking some liberties. Jesus addresses the crowds. You've heard, at least I am sure, smatterings here and there about some of the things that I've done for people in desperate situations, and some of you, many of you, are here precisely because of those things. You come after me, Because you want me to make your life better. You want me to give you your best life now. But I tell you, but I tell you, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Still paraphrasing. Okay, so... If you, you, if you're here to see what you can get from me, to see what I can do for you, I gladly tell you that what I will do for you is I will go before you. I will go in your place. I will stand in front of the judge of the universe and I will satisfy his wrath because of your ugly sins. That's what I will do for you. And I will appease his wrath, which he has towards you because of your ugly sins. And he will be satisfied because of me. And he will embrace you because of me. And he will welcome you into his heaven, which he has prepared for you. And what do I expect of you? What I expect of you, who wish to follow me, is to do as I am going to do. Not putting yourself in the front of the line. Not demanding favor. Not presuming that my goal for you in this life is to have it all. Rather, 
You must deny yourself, saying no to yourself, even as I am about to do. For they didn't know it yet, because it hadn't happened. But Jesus would be, as we know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on His knees, praying to the Father, imploring the Father, if there's any other way this can be done, please let it happen. Nevertheless, my Father in Heaven, not what I want, not what I deserve, but Your will be done. I will accept all that lies ahead, standing in where you should be standing. But I will put myself and my rights aside, denying myself, saying no to myself for your sakes. And while I will assume your cross, following me you will have your own cross to bear, for it is the mark of your true sonship and daughtership. So that whatever burden, whatever sorrow, whatever injury, whatever pain and suffering, whatever disappointment the Lord allows you to experience in this life, you should embrace it and carry it, for that is your cross to bear. And by it, you will show yourself and others that you are indeed a true follower of mine. Nice sentiments. But hard sentiments. And many pay lip service to them, not as many actually do them. But when they do, the angels in heaven smile. I'm going to read you something that Tannis Shea put down for me in her own words concerning her many years' struggle with breast cancer that then reoccurred and ended up taking her life. Three years ago, laying in the hospital bed after major surgery, my surgeon-oncologist came to speak to me. He told me that I have almost stage 3 ovarian cancer. Not only was it an aggressive cancer, but very rare as well. As he was telling me all this, I had a vision in my mind, in my heart, of the overwhelming love God had for me. That I was important in His eyes. That He wanted me to fill a job that no one else could do for Him. Just as He assigned Jesus, His perfect Son, to wear a crown of thorns, He wanted me to carry cancer. And I tell you, she was writing this in what would be end-stage cancer. Not in remission, not feeling great, everything was going ducky with a good prognosis. The vision of Christ wearing the crown of thorns was a vision I had many times while going through the grueling rounds of chemo. If Christ could endure the thrones and take the nails, then I, by golly, was going to take the chemo with some grace, dignity, and much gratitude. Now, three years later, I've been told the cancer not only returned, but now I will live with it while being treated for it the rest of my life. 
That is not what I wanted to hear, but it is a cross I am no less willing to bear if that is what God wants. And I truly feel this way because God so many times before showed himself to me as an up-close and very personal God during the last cancer. I knew I could trust him to be with me and give me exactly what I needed when I needed it, and I needed faith. After the shocking news that my cancer had returned, I was back in church. No one knew the news I was carrying. A sweet couple came up to me with a gift bag in hand. The woman said to me that what was in the bag was very special to her and her husband. As they were praying to the Lord about whom to give this gift to, my name came to them. While holding the unopened gift, I was telling a friend how the cancer had returned. Through tears, we held each other, and my friend said, Why does this have to be? How are you going to get through this? I responded by telling her of my ongoing vision of the crown of thorns, and that's how I will get through anything. We said our goodbyes, and we went into service. When I got home from church, I opened my gift. My breath was taken away as I sat down and I cried and cried. The gift was a beautiful drawing of a crown of thorns. And sitting in the middle of the crown was a lamb. This couple had no idea about my story and the significance that this picture would hold for me. They just did as they were led to do through prayer. For me, it was clear that God was saying, I'm still here, and I still need you. But more importantly, I love you. Wow, God loves me enough that he even gave me a physical picture to show it. And that picture hangs at the foot of my bed. It is the first thing I see every morning. And it's the last thing I see as the lights go out. And Tannis, our dear sister, friend, and wife, went and stood before the Lamb in person in October of 2011. She bore her cross with great honor and dignity to the glory of her Savior, as did her husband. If any would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What is so curious about the Christian experience is that we learn from history through the historian Tacitus that the emperor Nero's anti-Christian brutality was even worse than that of ISIS today. Nero was indeed an enraged, demonically possessed emperor who despised Christians. And he took public delight in torturing them. And in one historical account, he would take Christians and impale them. And he would set them on fire around his patio to be torches for his 
patio parties. What is really curious is that what finally turned the Roman populace against this madman was not God's incredible, phenomenal, miraculous deliverance of the Christians from their suffering, but it was rather how well the Christians died in the midst of their suffering. Historical record. Compare Jesus' words to that of a modern-day poser. I'm quoting verbatim. God wants to make your life easier. He wants to assist you. He wants to promote you, to give you advantages. He wants you to have preferential treatment. I've learned to expect people to want to help me. My attitude is, I'm a child of the Most High God. My Father created the whole universe. He has crowned me with favor. Therefore, I can expect preferential treatment. I can expect people to go out of their way to want to help me. To live your best life now, you must start looking at life through eyes of faith. Seeing yourself rising to new levels. Seeing your business taking off. Seeing your marriage restored. Seeing your family prospering. Seeing your dreams coming to pass. You must conceive it and believe it possible if you ever hope to experience it. Joel Osteen, in your best life now, which my last check, which was many years ago, it had sold 7 million copies worldwide. And why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? I like the prosperity God. I want one. He's just not to be found in the pages of Scripture. Jesus said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus continues in verses 34 to 37. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. What? But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I told you it was counterintuitive. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The flotsam and the jetsam of the world through the ages is overflowing with the remorse and the regret of millions of men and women who devoted their lives to climbing the ladder of success, successfully, and getting to the top of the ladder, only to realize too late that the ladder was leaning against the entirely wrong wall. The paradox of saving faith is that the only way to find everything a person is looking for is to abandon the pursuit of everything a person is looking for. Through the lens of mankind, that 
just doesn't make sense. Through the lens of the Lord God, it makes perfect sense. For as Isaiah tells us, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. The state of the church of Christ today is not healthy. That should be a duh. Unfortunately, of course, it isn't. And I'm not even talking here, though, about the poser church of Jesus Christ, the church that bears and wears his name. But you see, we are living in what may be the most, not unique at all, but certainly the most bizarre times in history. I mean, Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun, and believe me, in all my readings about the foundations of this country, which are ongoing, and reading about uh, the politics of it, it was, it was, I'm telling you, it was as nasty back then as it is today. So take heart. <laughs> but the extent and the pace at which, now get this, I coined this, at which a godly godlessness is overtaking Christendom seems extraordinary. Former Speaker of the House, who has identified himself as a born-again Christian, calling a Christian presidential candidate Lucifer in the flesh. It's just hard for me to grasp. And while Christians are, in my opinion, rightly freaking out about men who think they are women being granted free access to their bathroom of perceived gender, the church, the Christian church, is defending day by day just about everything that comes down the pike. And that's what I mean by a godly godlessness. The Apostle Peter has some sobering words. Not for they, them, and those. Not for the apostates. Not for the world. Not for the culture. This is Peter, 1 Peter 4, verses 16 and 17. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God, In this name, for it is time for judgment to begin with those wretched they, them, and those out there. Oh boy, they're going to get theirs. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. That was the reversed vision. No, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, then what will be the outcome for those who do not even obey the gospel of Christ? Oh, man. How many of you in here can honestly say 
okay, as I'm honestly saying right now, that each epic that just, I'm, for right now I'm going to, to tie it to presidential elections for as long as I've been alive, okay, or at least can remember. Well, no, that would only be last week. As long as I've been alive, that each presidential election, and especially after the current sitting president, I say to myself, wow, I mean, I thought things were about as bad as they could get, but nope, boy, was I wrong. Oh, but this time, boy, they're about as bad as they can get. Whoops, nope, boy, was I wrong. Oh, but this time, they're really just about as bad as, I mean, they can get, no, whoops, nope, I was wrong. (laughs) So now I'm just going, okay, I can't wait for the next shoe to drop. Because if there is one thing that ought to be clear to us now, today, It is that national salvation, cultural redemption, and revitalization of the world and of peace, love, dove, and the economy, it is sure as hell not going to come through Washington. I don't care who is in office. It's just not going to happen. Now, don't go inferring and reading into that. Okay? If you got a question, ask me personally. But sports fans, we are told that judgment is coming, and it's coming first to the house of God. And I believe that is exactly part and parcel of everything that we've been seeing in exponentially increasing terms over the last eight years And I am not optimistic that that is going to level off, much less get better. Because God is not pleased. He is not pleased with the world. But we understand that. That's why He sent the Redeemer. He is not pleased with the body of Christ on earth. And the body of Christ on earth just keeps adopting more and more of the ways of the world and glossing over and justifying it with a godly godlessness In the name of Jesus. God have mercy on us. And grace. But bring personal repentance to those who make up the body of Christ on earth, which is you and me. Not they, not them, not those. Father in heaven, I don't even know what to say anymore about your church. And Lord, what is becoming refreshingly unnerving is the thought processes of truly studied, God-fearing individuals who blatantly declare their love and and loyalty and allegiance to you. And Lord, I don't doubt that. And that's why it's uh, a renewed way. It is frightening to me because more and more those people who I really do believe are yours are being sucked in with the best of intentions to reach the lost who desperately needs you. And yes, we know that's why you came. But you have at the same time called us 
to be not just declarers of righteousness, but doers of righteousness, so as by mercy and grace to slow down the pace of sinfulness around us. And instead, Lord, I fear we are encouraging it, even if ever so unwittingly. God, give us discernment, and thy kingdom come, not mine. In your name, amen.